It was a particularly cold evening on November 27th, 2010, and Constable Aaron Keller had a hunch. He was driving along Highway 27 on a mostly unimportant errand, delivering a purse that belonged to a woman who, just earlier that day, hit a moose while driving in the road. She'd been transported to the hospital, and a good Samaritan found it and turned it into the RCMP. Keller, being a relatively new officer on the force, just over a year on the job, was assigned with delivering it to another officer up the road who would take it to the woman in Vanderhoof. When he first saw the headlights bobbing up and down through a forested area off the highway, he initially thought that they were a couple of snowmobiles driving on the trails along the road. As he drew closer, he realized that the headlights belonged to a pickup truck. He watched as it sped along the off-road and then turned sharply onto the highway. At first, he thought the driver might have been drunk, but Keller also knew that poaching was a common activity in the area. Keller had a hunch that whoever was driving the truck had been out in the woods, hunting. He sent a message using his onboard computer to Constable Sidhu, the officer who was waiting for him up the road. He told him that he observed a suspicious vehicle and that he was going to pull it over, but only after the two had met up. He wanted Sidhu there for safety. If the driver had been poaching, as Keller suspected, he probably had a gun or a knife. Call it a hunch. After speeding to catch up with the truck, driving south along Highway 27, Keller pulled it over at 9.43 p.m. on a flat stretch of road just north of a landfill. As he approached the vehicle, he saw that the driver had already stretched his arm out the window, license and registration at the ready. He thought that was odd. In the hundred-odd traffic stops that Constable Keller had conducted, he had never seen anyone do that. The driver was 20 years old. He was stocky, and he had sandy blonde hair. He was wearing a black, long-sleeved t-shirt, and oddly enough, cargo shorts. The temperature was well below freezing. Keller himself was wearing long johns under his full uniform, and even he was cold. As he explained that the driver had just been pulled over for speeding, Keller noticed a small red smear on his left cheek. This seemed to fit with his poaching theory, but as he questioned the driver, Keller felt a certain unease wash over him. Something felt off. By this time, Constable Sidhu had arrived on the scene and appeared at the passenger side window. As he shined his flashlight onto the back seat of the cab, he saw an open beer can and some half-drunk coolers, the sweet, sugary kind that teenage girls like to drink at parties. The open alcohol gave the constables grounds to search the vehicle under the Liquor Control and Licensing Act. After leading the driver to the front of the pickup truck, 
killer commenced with a quick pat-down of the suspect, avoiding the droplets of blood that speckled his shorts. He found a cell phone, and after reaching into the left pocket of his cargo shorts, he found a small Leatherman multi-tool. It was covered in gelled blood. As Keller placed the items on the hood of the pickup truck, he and Constable Sidhu conducted a search of the vehicle. They found a pipe wrench. It was on the ground in the back seat. As Keller shined his flashlight over it, he saw that it was covered in snow and blood. The two officers informed the young man that he was under arrest for poaching violation under the Wildlife Protection Act. When questioned about the blood on his clothes and face and the scratches that ran along his arms and legs, he admitted that he had been out in the woods driving with a friend. They had shot a deer from the truck, tracked it down, and then took turns clubbing it to death with the pipe wrench. Keller told him that taking turns clubbing a deer to death, well, that can sometimes turn people into serial killers. Keller never knew that at that moment he was talking to a serial killer. In fact, he was talking to the youngest serial killer in the history of Canada. His name was Cody Lejabakov, and by the time he was 20 years old, he had already claimed the lives of four women. I'm Taryn Gorbon, and this is Monograph. Conservation Officer Cameron Hill was called to the scene at 10.30pm to investigate a possible case of poaching. When he arrived, he took a brief police statement before recording an interview with the suspect. He was skeptical of his story. When he went to speak again with the officers, he noticed an uneasy tension between them. The two had just made a discovery. They had found a small monkey backpack, and inside they found a BC Children's Hospital card that belonged to a 15-year-old girl. Hill drove up the highway to the road where the pickup truck was first seen. He followed the tire tracks in the snow that eventually led to an area where they looped around and stopped near a gravel pit. He pulled out his flashlight and exited his vehicle. As he followed the footprints that led off the road and into the woods along a ravine, he saw that there had been a poor attempt to cover them up. His boots crunched through a mixture of old and new snow, and as he continued walking, he saw several drops of blood. He surveyed the area with his flashlight, and he saw that it looked as though something had been dragged into a thick bush under an evergreen tree. His flashlight flickered as he drew closer, and with each step, his heart beat faster. And that is when he came upon the body of Lauren Leslie. She was lying face down in the snow. 
She had been beaten repeatedly over the head and her throat was slashed. Her long blonde hair was matted with blood and her pants had been rolled around her ankles. There were no signs of life. After realizing the true horror of what he had just stumbled upon, he retreated up the hill to his vehicle where he reached for his radio. The officers were anxiously waiting for an update. He told them it was the worst case scenario. They needed to call their supervisor. Lauren Leslie was 15 years old, and she lived in the small town of Vanderhoof, BC. She loved reading and karate, and even though she had been born with a genetic eye condition that left her legally blind, she never let it on. She was independent and mature for her age, and was, by all accounts, a normal teenage girl. She met Cody Lejibakov on the Canadian social networking site, Nexopia, where Cody used the screen name One Country Boy. They had been talking for a few months, and on the night of November 27th, 2010, the two made plans to meet up. Cody picked her up at an elementary school, where she was waiting for him on a swing set. She got in his pickup truck, and the two drove away. It was past midnight when Don Leslie, Lauren's father, received a call from the RCMP. They asked him if Lauren was home, and he told them that she was not. In fact, he was waiting up for her to arrive home. They told him that they found someone who was using her ID, and that they would call him soon with more information. After waiting anxiously by the phone for over an hour, Don decided to head out to the highway and drive until he saw a cop and could get some answers. He eventually came upon the blue and red flashing lights of several RCMP vehicles, where he pulled over and approached the first person he could find. It was the conservation officer, Cameron Hill, who was pale and looked visibly shaken. Don told him that he never wanted to hear any bullshit. He wanted to know what was going on. Hill told him that all he could say was that they were investigating a murder. Don felt his stomach drop as his worst nightmares were being realized. Another officer approached them and said that they were having trouble identifying the body. Don told them about a tattoo on his daughter's wrist. It said, grip fast. It was their family motto. It meant, hang on tight. They found the tattoo. Cody Allen Lejibokov was born on January 21st, 1990, in Fort St. James. He had a pleasant childhood with loving parents, an older brother, and a younger sister. He played hockey, and he enjoyed camping and hunting with his grandfather. Every year, he looked forward to their annual fishing trip in Kitimat. After graduating from high school, he moved to Lethbridge, Alberta, where he worked a variety of odd jobs. He then moved back to Fort St. James for the summer of 2009, and after living with his family for a few months, 
he moved to Prince George, where he got a job at a local Ford dealership. After his arrest, he was transported to the Vanderhoof RCMP detachment, where he was booked and moved into a jail cell. Before long, he was taken to an interrogation room where, waiting for him, was RCMP interviewer Sergeant Paul Dadwall. After several hours, a young woman was led into the interrogation room. Her name was Amy Vol, and she was Cody's girlfriend of a few months. She was there to get him talking. The two had been hanging out just earlier that evening on November 27th. Cody received a text message from Lauren at 6.04 p.m., and less than a minute after Amy left his house at 6.30, Cody replied and immediately began making plans for them to meet up. Cody admitted to having sex with Lauren twice in the back of his pickup truck, and he repeatedly asks for Amy's forgiveness. They had been drinking, he said, but he didn't kill her. When she asked him what happened, he again denied killing Lauren Leslie, saying that she went crazy, grabbing the pipe wrench he kept in his back seat and beating herself over the face with it. When asked why he didn't stop her, he said that it was a lot to take in and that he was in shock. According to Lejubakov, she then leapt out of the truck and beat herself unconscious. Another investigator in the room said that was ridiculous. You can't beat yourself unconscious. And there were two sets of injuries. Her throat had been slashed by Cody's Leatherman multi-tool. When he was pressed for the unvarnished, unedited truth, Cody admitted that he had used the wrench to hit Lauren once, twice at most, but by that point, she was already dead. During the interrogation, Cody was asked if he knew Cynthia Mass, a woman whose body had been dumped in a Prince George Park just two months earlier. Cynthia Mass was 35 years old and she was the mother of a young daughter. On the day she disappeared, October 9th, 2010, she had been in contact with a social worker and had filled out a series of forms at a local women's shelter. She was found in a remote area of Elsie Gun Park by two patrolling officers. She had been beaten over the head multiple times with a blunt object and had stab wounds on her neck and the right side of her chest. She was naked from the waist down and her pants were rolled around her ankles. Lejibokov denied knowing Cynthia, but during a more exhaustive search of his truck, Authorities found a black sweater and a small woman's sock with blood on it. DNA testing was conducted on the clothing, and they matched the genetic profile of Cynthia Mass. In a search of Lejibokov's home, investigators also found a small picaroon in his bedroom. Swabs taken from the handle also matched the genetic profile of Cynthia Mass. RCMP were eventually able to link Cody Lejibokov to the murders of two other women. Jill Stacy Stuchenko disappeared on October 9th, 2009, and her body was found 17 days later, half buried in a gravel pit on the outskirts of Prince George. She suffered a series of massive blows to the head, and her blood loss was so extreme 
that the pathologist actually had difficulty obtaining a sample during the autopsy. Police noted in their search of Cody's home a large, saturated blood stain on the couch. The blood yielded a positive match to Jill Stacy's Duchenko. Natasha Lynn Montgomery was only 23 years old when she went missing. She was the mother of two children, a boy and a girl, and she had been with their father since they were 12 years old. Natasha was addicted to crack cocaine and methamphetamine and worked along Queensway Avenue in Prince George as a prostitute to support her habit. She had just been released from the Prince George Regional Correctional Facility on August 19th, 2010, and on September 1st, she went missing. Her body has never been found. Despite the mountain of physical evidence against him, Cody Lejabakov pled not guilty to four counts of first-degree murder. At his trial, which was held in Prince George in 2014 and lasted four months, Lejabakov fabricated a story that limited his involvement. Instead, he pointed the fingers at three men who were the ones to actually commit the murders. Cody was reluctant to give their names in fear of being labeled a rat in prison, calling them X, Y, and Z, respectively. In his closing remarks, the Honorable Justice G.W. Parrott noted that these three individuals, in all likelihood, don't exist, and that his story was a clear demonstration of a complete void within the young man. The judge said that Cody lacked any shred of empathy or remorse, and that he should never be allowed to walk among us again. When the verdict was read and Cody Lejabakov was found guilty on all four counts of first-degree murder, the gallery exploded in applause, but he didn't flinch. At the time of his arrest, Cody was the youngest serial killer in the history of Canada, and if it wasn't for a hunch, he would still be out there, walking among us. But he's not. All because of a hunch. Monograph was written and produced by Taryn Gorbon with music by Trent Reznor. Thank you for listening.